It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time. Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? I like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I travel to over 90 countries, and while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States, the history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure, and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over, and Quarter Mouse Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Welcome back to Quarter Miles Travel, a podcast where we investigate the story behind the U.S. Mint State Quarter Designs. I'm Anita Thomas. And I'm Olivia Varnson. Now today we explore part two of our main State Quarter episodes, and this is episode number four. Now the main State Quarter highlights two recognizable landmarks. One is the Pemaquid Point Light, perched atop its rocky cliff. And the other is a three-masted schooner representing not only Maine's long history of sailing, but also its contributions to the timber industry. These ships were often made with trees found in Maine, and they went on to carry that timber to other parts of the country. Last week, we shared how you can experience a journey on the last three-masted schooner, the Victory Chimes. Check out part one to hear an interview with the charismatic Captain Kit Files, who led us on an expedition through Maine's coastal waterways. But today we're going to focus on the Pemaquid Point Light, located in Bristol, Maine. 
The lighthouse was originally commissioned in 1826 by President John Quincy Adams. At the time, Maine was a growing supplier of timber, and there was an increasing amount of traffic in the water as the country built its port cities. The light stands 48 feet above ground and 79 feet above sea level. It can be seen for 14 miles to warn ships of the rocks that lay right beneath it. After lighthouses became automated in the 1930s, the U.S. government planned to sell the lighthouse property. Through the efforts of passionate Bristol citizens, the town of Bristol gained ownership over the course of the next five years. Since then, Pemaquid Point Light has become Pemaquid Point Lighthouse Park. Visitors can explore the lighthouse tower, a fisherman's museum, which is located in what was formerly the lighthouse keeper's home, a local art gallery, and a learning center. We visited Pimaquick Park to speak with Craig Elliott from the Fisherman's Museum. Craig walked us through the fascinating exhibits and artifacts and shared the history of the lighthouse and its role in developing the community of Bristol. Listen as Craig tells us why the original lighthouse structure was destroyed and how the lighthouse continues to play a very important role in the town. The lighthouse was built 1827. Uh-huh. 1835, due to poor workmanship, they had to tear it down. So the tower you see out there now was built in 1835. What they did, they used salt water to mix the mortar. Bad idea. And when they built it, they made two walls, filled the walls full of cement in between. Bad idea. (laughs) So when this new one was built, it specified it had to be solid rock all the way around, all the way to top. Now, it's a solid rock, some of the rock that's around here, because it seems like there's a lot of rock around If the there's area. one thing we have in Maine besides lobsters, plenty of rocks, plenty of ledges. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So what happened that, so when you said it had to be, like, rebuilt and everything, what exactly happened? Did it fall down? Did it, no, it just, just, just crumbled? Or? It started to crumble. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the salt water was bleeding out of the cement, causing it to crumble, and they ju- it just had to be torn down mm-hmm. and, and start all over again. Now, this residence here, originally at that time, this is stone. Two rooms, big fireplace in the middle. Now, in the 1850s, this started to deteriorate. So, in the 1850s, they tore this down and built this residents you see here now. So is this where the lighthouse keeper, his family? This is where the lighthouse keeper lived. Mm -hmm. Some had, most of them had family. There was one baby born in here Mm -hmm. and there was one marriage performed in here. But we have 25 or 30 marriages a year out here. Now? Yeah. Yeah. But when it was a working lighthouse, tell us a little bit about the family and the baby it's, that was born here. It still is a working lighthouse. Oh, it still is? Okay. It's okay. still working. Mm-hmm. They'll never do away with lighthouses for one reason. It keeps the tourists coming, and we need them tourist dollars to survive. Craig's right about that. Pamaquid Park sees up to 125,000 visitors every year. And honestly, Anita, I'm surprised it doesn't see more given its stunning location. It is very stunning. It is located on a cliff with a sprawling rock 
that descends into the ocean. I mean, just simply beautiful, picturesque. I always say in scenes like that, you need to be a poet to really properly describe it. It's easy to see why a lighthouse was essential, though, in keeping this area safe. Lighthouse keepers played an important role, not just in maintaining the light, but also actively guarding the coast. The first keeper was Isaac Dunham, who began work in 1827. From then on, the lighthouse witnessed rescues, disasters, hurricanes, and as Craig mentioned, even a birth and a marriage. In 1927, keeper Herbert Robinson was 68 years old and preparing for retirement. That didn't stop him from rescuing two people who were enjoying the views from the cliffs. An 18-year-old boy and his aunt and uncle were sitting on the rocks when a giant wave swept them out to sea. Unfortunately, the young man did not survive. His aunt and uncle were saved by Robinson's quick action. And in 1930, Pimaquit's final keeper, Leroy S. Elwell, saved three young people whose cat boat had overturned in the wind. Even though the three of them were strong swimmers, they were growing exhausted with the effort to stay afloat. Elwell had time to launch his small rescue skiff perfectly with the gust of wind. After several attempts, he was finally able to reach the trio and help them into the boat. I say, whew, to that one. That sounds like it was really pretty terrific. And it does take perfect timing to kind of figure out how the wind is moving so that you time your launch perfectly, because if you don't, you can get swept out in the complete opposite direction. Or back into the rocks. Exactly. And we'll learn more about devastating shipwrecks later in the episode, but as Craig pointed out, the lighthouse also contains a lot of happy memories, too. Keeper Joseph Lawler and his wife Sofriona welcomed their daughter Susie into the world at the lighthouse in 1868. And several years later, our rescuer Herbert Robinson we just talked about witnessed his daughter Edith's marriage on the porch of the keeper's house, which of course is now the Fisherman's Museum. Oh, wow. A lot of exciting things happen there. But in the next clip, Olivia, Craig tells us about the purpose the lighthouse served for the ships out on the water. Now that we know how dangerous the waters were, even for those who weren't out at sea, one can only imagine what it was like to be on a ship, navigating around those rocks, and under the threat of strong winds and heavy thunderstorms. It marks Muskongas Bay, and it marks Johns Bay. And also, it lets you know that danger, 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 these rocks out here and ledges. We've had five or six ships wrecked out here. The last one was wrecked was 1917, the last, last shipwreck we had. So we've been kind of boring around here ever since. Okay. Except, <laughs> well, we've had a lot of people washed off, washed off the rocks, people acting stupid. In 1989, right that spot right out there at the end of them bushes, there was 20 people sitting there watching them big waves. So finally a, a rogue wave come in and took 20 of them off. They got them all back, but one young girl, she was here two years ago, first time she'd been here since it happened. The wave took her out, and when it brought her back, she was right on top of that wave. So when she got over them ledges, down she came. It didn't stove her up quite a lot. She survived it, but a lot of broken bones, a lot of blood flying. So you mentioned two bays coming in here. So tell us a little bit about the water that we see up right here. This water, 
Well, it's just it's the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. This this bay here, and then as I say, John's Bay going that way. Yeah, there was nothing special about it. Except there's a hell of a lot of lobsters out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of lobsters. Lobster meals are plentiful up and down Maine's coast, and there's a long history of fishing for them in the area. Much of the Fisherman's Museum at Pemaquid Park contains artifacts related to lobster fishing. The museum is divided into four rooms. The navigation room, where you'll see a Fresnel lens, buoy bells, and a Lyle gun that was used for shooting a lifeline to ships. The fish house, designed to look like the work area of lobstermen with tools and gears on display. The net room, showcasing how different fish were caught and harvested at sea ranging from small scallops to eels, and the gallery containing models of boats and pictures from the community. But that's not all that's on display in the museum. We were struck by the sight of a preserved 28-pound lobster in the fish house. That was really fascinating to see. That was the largest lobster I've ever seen. It's a big girl. <laughs> Craig told us it was not uncommon to find lobsters even bigger than that, but it was unlikely you'd find one that size served in Maine. Maine has some of the strictest limitations of the lobster fishing in the country, and with good reason. Here Craig explains lobster laws and how they affect lobster fishing. Well, this is a real lobster. Now, he was caught in Rhode Island. The little story about what we're doing with it, but this lobster in Maine is illegal. If they caught you with that lobster in Maine, they'd lock you up. May or may not let you out ever. Maine is the only state we have a minimum size lobster you can keep and we have a maximum size lobster you can keep. You didn't bring your lobster measure with you. No, we did not. We just we just want to eat whatever is put in front of well, us. Well, I happen to have one in my back pocket. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lobster measure. Everybody, no fisherman leaves the wharf without one, okay? This side of the measure, ladies, is five inches, and this side is three and a quarter. When we measure lobsters, we measure from the back of the eye socket to the back of the body, right there where the tail starts. In the state of Maine, that distance from there to there cannot be over five inches. And it has to be at least three and a quarter or it's too small. And back it goes. Now, the big question is why do we throw the big ones back? Well, I'm glad you asked, dear. There's a female lobster. They will carry under their tail, depending on age and their size, anywhere from 10,000 upwards of 100,000 eggs under their tail. Out of 10,000 eggs, on average, less than 100 of those are going to survive. Unbelievable high mortality rate. So, lobster catches her, sees those eggs, gets a lot to bring her in, he has to throw her back overboard. Before he throws her back overboard, he's going to do this. See that V-notch right there? They cut a V-notch in that flipper. So always the second flipper in from the right. Technically, any mark whatsoever, even a scratch on that fin, you do not bring it in. You throw him back overboard. So they cut the V in, throw her overboard, she drops all her eggs, gets caught again without any eggs, but he sees that V-notch, designates the female and the breeder, so he gets slaughtered to bring her in. Has to throw her back overboard. So... She's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and having more and more baby lobsters.
Biologist claims a big female lobster needs a big male lobster to mate. So in the state of Maine, any lobster measures over that five inches, back in the water it goes. But we're the only state that, that does that. This, a lobster this size, are there a lot of those in the water? Oh, this, this, oh, just yeah. looks, this is the largest lobster I've ever seen. The <laughs> biggest one on record weighed 44 pounds. This one's only 28. As Craig led us through the museum into the net room, he explained how different traps and nets were ideal for different kinds of fish. In addition to the rules of fishing for lobster, fishing boats in Maine's waters must also abide by another complex system. Every buoy you see in the water is designated with a color and sometimes different symbols to represent which fisher it belongs to. So this allows lobster fishers to leave their traps in the water without having to constantly monitor them. In this clip, Craig, Craig explains the buoy system in more detail. The, the wooden traps, they haven't used them for over 40 years. Now they use these ugly things here, the wire wooden uh, final covered wire. The buoys that you see hanging up there, those are pot buoys. Not the kind of pot you guys are thinking of. Lobster pot, <laughs> pot boys. Every one of those you'll see on the, in the water out here is, a, is at least one trap on the end of them. These all now are, are a collector's item. Okay. And if you can find one, they're going to sock it to you. What they use today, they use the styrofoam boys. They all look alike, except for the colors. Now every fishman has his own color. And these are what we call a bullet shape. And they're bullet shaped so that anything floating in the water will slide off. It has a tendency to slide off rather than getting hung up on it or something. So that's why they make them all that they call a bullet shape. So anything floating in the water, meaning like what? Like oh, seaweed, seaweed or anything like that. Okay. It'll slide off that. Mm -hmm. Slide off that board. So that, that helps with what? I mean, why, why would you want that to happen? <laughs> you would try to haul 300 lobster traps, and every one of them you got to clean the seaweed and stuff off the boys. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just time saving. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, all these boys, the color is on their license, it's registered with the state. On their boats, they have to have one of their boys prominently displayed. Now generally, they stand them up on a post. So you look out there, and someone's hauling traps, and they show this boy on top of that post, and you happen to look out and see him pick up this one. Bad boy. Yeah. That ain't his. Being able to see these artifacts, and in some cases even pick them up and examine them more closely, gave us really a much greater sense of what the fishing lifestyle was like long ago. It highlights the relationship between the lighthouse and those who spent their time at sea. The safety that the lighthouse provided allowed fishing companies to build their businesses uninterrupted and thus helped the town of Bristol grow as a whole when they returned to land with their catchings. Now I know we've talked and so has Craig a lot about these artifacts so go to our website Travel Bags with Anita dot com to see photos of all of these very exciting Olivia things to see 
because it really does take you back a long time ago to what fishing was like. And they are very authentic. A lot of things you can pick up and hold in your own hands, see how heavy it is, see how it worked, and get a sense of what life was like for the lobstermen, specifically in this area, because these are all community-donated artifacts. When the town of Bristol sought to purchase the lighthouse from the government, it was important to them that they kept ownership within the community instead of it going to outsiders. Perhaps it was a way of honoring the lighthouse that had kept their community members safe and the members that maintained the light, and in some cases, rescued people with their own hands. The Fisherman's Museum is a representation of what was able to flourish thanks in part to the guiding light of Pemaquid. The artifacts on display come from the community members and give clues to the area's rich history. In this clip, Craig tells us about the contributions, established fishing families, and some of the famous mysteries of the area. Yeah, this everything in here is donated by the by the fishermen. All their families. If the fishermen all happens to be with us any longer. So are there are there uh, descendants of some of the fishermen that still live in the area? Um, oh yeah. Some of their oh, kids yeah. or grandkids, that kind of thing. Some of the old time families all that fished here for years and years, there's none of them left. One of them, the brackets, the last one died here either last year or the year before. You know, a lot of the fishing families are dying out because younger people aren't getting into it. But so there is enough young people that are. Mm -hmm. but, and, uh, the, and the Brackett's family, do you know a little bit about them? I mean, were they lobster fishermen or do they fish also for fish? Can you tell us they're lobster fishermen. Them? Some of them are out on that Higgin Island out here, settled out there. Yeah. This boat here left here one day and never see it again. What happened? Well, if they knew, but they don't, we surmise what happened, but really no way of telling. I mean, they just never, they won't never come back. This ship, this boat here is the same way. One of the brackets owned that ship, and uh, he had a stroke and had to give it up. So that was sold to an outfit down in Massachusetts that, Rebuild it to do something different. Added way, way, way too much weight onto it. And they were told that boat was not built to hold the amount of weight she's putting on it. And sure enough, she went out and didn't even come back. Probably rolled a ruler. And it would take just seconds, you know, to fill that full of water. So, How many people were lost on it? I think there was four on there. As Craig mentioned, Brackett is a name you'll see often when digging into Primaquid history. In fact, it was Verena Brackett who spearheaded the initiative to purchase the lighthouse from the government. She owned Hotel Primaquid at the time, an establishment that is still in operation today. Verena and Selectman John Spall traveled to Portland to begin negotiations with the government and it eventually led to Bristol's purchase. And if you remember the story of Keeper Elwell rescuing the young trio, they needed assistance returning to shore once they were safely inside the skip. They were assisted by local W.J. Burnside in a boat sent by Captain Thomas Brackett, who was living in New Harbor at the time. But the Brackets aren't the only ones with a rich history in the area. Craig himself has a family history in clam digging. Here he tells us about his father's career, as well as the state of clam digging in the area today. Then we have clams, these are steam clams that they go after. 
And this is what they used to dig them with in the mud. This is called an idiot stick. You'd have to be kind of an idiot to do that, bend over like that five or six hours, wouldn't you? <laughs> I know clowns are pretty good, so. But the days of being an idiot stick are long gone. <laughs> when my father dug clowns years and years, and I do mean years ago, he got 50 cents for a barrel of clams, three bushel in a barrel. When I was in high school, we got $3 for a bushel. And last summer, at one point in Brunswick, they were paying $210 for that bushel of clams. So really, that's not much of an idiot stick anymore. Them guys, them guys are making some money. Bristol is a town with a lot of pride in its history, as evident by the Pimaquit Park and its well-maintained museum. Artifacts and stories from the past are deeply, deeply treasured. And what's exciting is that there are still new discoveries being made all the time. Just a few years ago, the Fisherman's Museum received a personal belonging from one of the lighthouse's most decorated keepers. This clock here belonged to the lighthouse keeper that was here from 1869 to 1873. Last summer, one of his relatives showed up with this. Thought this would be a good place to, to show it. So thank you very much. This is over 150 years old. This lighthouse keeper, his name was Marcus Hanna. He won, in the Civil War, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. When he got out of the service, he went into Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard, while he was in there, he won their version of the Congressional Medal of Honor for a bunch of people that he saved. And we got a story on him out there by the front door. They ended up naming a one of the Coast Guard cutters after him, Marcus Hanna. Other remnants from the past can be found within the museum and around the park grounds. Many of the authentic artifacts come from the remains of shipwrecks that occurred in the area. Although the lighthouse was completed in 1827, unfortunately, shipwrecks took place almost 200 years before then. In 1635, the Angel Gabriel was hit by a powerful storm and lost three or four of its passengers as well as several animals and goods on board. One man by the name of Bailey is said to have come to the area from his home country in search of an ideal settlement. Once he found the perfect spot, he would send for his wife. After surviving the shipwreck, however, Bailey wrote to his wife that he was too traumatized to ever board a ship again. Bailey's wife was also terrified of what she learned and could not board a ship to join her husband in the colonies. The couple never saw each other again. Now, Olivia, that's a really sad story. It is really sad. I mean, I can only imagine how traumatizing it must have been to be in that shipwreck. Well, I think I would be like Bailey's wife, and I would just be afraid of the stories that I heard to even yes. attempt to take that risk. No idea what to expect, and you know that it's a long journey with the Atlantic Ocean in between you, likely. Yes. Now, in 1903, two ships, the Edmonds, a mackerel signer, and Sadie and Little, a small schooner, were also caught in a storm. Fifteen mariners died, but two members of the Sadie and Little crew were rescued by a witness, Weston Curtis. He was able to throw them a line amidst the waves and pull them to shore. Another famous shipwreck occurred in 1917. The Willis and Guy was lost in the fog and struck the rocks. 
Fortunately, though, the three-person crew was saved, but a hurricane destroyed the vessel just a few days later. Since the ship was already close to Pemaquake rock formations, locals were able to pick through the wreckage, and here Craig tells us all about what they found. The last shipwreck we had here, that's the Willison Guard. She went on the rocks all the way back in 1917, but four days after she went on the rocks, a big hurricane hit here. Totally demolished it. She was carrying 216 ton of coal, so after Mother Nature got through with her, the townspeople come down, cleaned all that coal up, took it on the house for the winter. There was a crew, I think there was three on there, that survived it. Now, in 1903, we had two go on the rocks out here. Out of 19 people, we only managed to save four of those. That's the last shipwreck we had here. Now, the wheel from that, the steering wheel, is laying outside the building out there. You may have seen it on the way in. That's, that's the wheel off the Willison guy. Craig believes Pemaquid's history dates back even further than what is immediately available on record. His passion for history led to the discovery that many pilgrims came to Pemaquid and established a fishing station. Some returned to Europe, some explored the rest of the East Coast, but others remained in Pemaquid and settled there. Listen as Craig tells us about his interest in the history of the area and just how far back these settlements might go. And I, I, I just love history. And there's a lot of it here. Plymouth, Massachusetts. We were settled here long before Plymouth, Massachusetts ever existed. And the only reason the pilgrims survived because they come up here to Pemaquid and we give them a bunch of food and get through the window. People were farming here and uh, had wild... Uh, well, they wild had water. fishing stations here. Okay. Like out on Manhagen Island, mm -hmm. they were coming in there the late 1500s, early 1600s, catching codfish, like salt, salt them and dry them all summer long, and then, full cold weather, they load them on the ship and head back to England or Portugal or wherever they were from, and that's, that's where they made their money. The boat trip from here back to Europe but in the 1500s, 1600s, wasn't that much fun. So a lot of them would stay here. And they would wander on the island rather than suffer through that trip on the way back to So there was people living here long before the pilgrims ever showed up. The Fisherman's Museum at Pimaquit Park is a perfect representation of the relationship between lighthouses, ships, and the communities on land. The lighthouses guide the ships that helped build the industries for the growing port towns. It's no wonder that the town of Bristol would be so dedicated to preserving their history and honoring the lighthouse keepers and fishermen that helped the area grow into what it is today. If you'd like to visit this beautiful park, explore the grounds, and take in the ocean views, Bristol is a pleasant drive from Portland that clocks in around one hour. Along the way, you'll pass through a handful of charming seaside towns with historic buildings, scenic parks, and of course, plenty of opportunities to taste some lobster. You can even stay at the Fisherman's Museum and relive the experiences of the lighthouse keepers. The second floor of the museum is available for vacation rentals year-round, even in the winter, with a rate of $200 per night. To learn more about this park, visit www.visitmaine.com. 
Olivia, I would definitely suggest that people do that. They can check out the lighthouse as well as travel on down to Rockland and take that sailing with Captain Kip Files on the Victory Chimes. Make it all one trip. You can knock out the main state corner in one easy trip. And we had a lot of fun visiting the Pemaquid Point Park. When the tide is low, you are able to go down to the rock formations and kind of sit there and just bask in it all. It really is like a jaw-dropping, beautiful sight. It's filled with Instagrammable moments. So definitely have your camera ready or your smartphone ready to take some photos because you will definitely want to do that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of photos. We appreciate you all joining us for episode four which is actually part two of the Main State Quarter, and hope that you will join us again when we explore another one of the U.S. Mint State Quarters. We go with Quarter Miles Travel and turn those quarters into an adventure. Quarter Miles Travel would like to extend a very special thank you to the following companies and people for their assistance with this podcast. Marshall Communications, The Fisherman's Museum, Pimaquid Lighthouse, the Maine Windjammer Association, Charlene Williams, Whitney Raymond, Whitney Moreau, Marty Maine, Abe Levine, Meg Maiden, and a very special thank you to our guest, Craig Elliott.